Well, we're recording in an sort of open space and you're going to be able to hear some background noise for this recording. We haven't started yet, but the road is close by and I'm not in a soundproof area. And then I also decided to start the dishwasher an hour ago thinking that'll be done by the time we start recording. So I really thought this through, proud of myself. Um, but yeah, so, so let's just start the episode with comic and commercial actor Paul Morrissey. He's also a retired sports broadcaster. So we have lots of questions and we get into it. Let's go. You're listening to Service from Hell, a podcast featuring people that are currently in customer service positions or the lucky few that got out and all the good, bad, and infinitely irritating things that go along with that work. I'm actor and writer Kate Gaffney, and I'm uniquely qualified to discuss this as I used to work at a very busy and very popular comedy club in Los Angeles, and at least one of you listening right now has probably grabbed me and told me you were ready to order when I was running around like a crazy person. So let's eat. I'd like to welcome our guest, comic and commercial actor, Paul Morrissey. Paul is best known for his many TV appearances on The Late Show with David Letterman and The Late Late Show on CBS. He appeared as a sports reporter in Nike commercials with NBA star Chris Paul, who I'm sure no one's heard of. Morrissey was a TV sports anchor for ABC prior to his career in comedy. You may know Paul as the co-host of the Come to Papa podcast with the lovely Tom Papa on the lovely Bill Burr's All Things Comedy Network. Morrissey also co-hosted the Artie Lang podcast, I love him, and is a frequent guest of the, I always mess this up, and is a frequent guest of the Bennington Show on Sirius XM. Paul is here to promote his newest special, Ice Cream Versus Everything, where he makes the utterly insane claim that strawberry ice cream is trash, and I will fight him over this. We almost didn't have him on as a result, but the rest of the album's really funny, so we relented. But Paul... Uh, have you learned the difference between Celsius and Fahrenheit yet? What's your favorite sports or team or both? And why did you leave broadcasting? Tell us. <laughs> well, the first one is such a good question because I literally just crossed into the Canadian border in the last <laughs> like 20 minutes. So I'm gonna, I just had to learn what kilometers were again because it has it's on the inside of the speedometer. But, uh, but I've always said there's not enough space in between for Celsius because, like, zero is still cold, but then, like, four is hot, <laughs> and it just doesn't make any sense. I it agree. should be zero and 100. That's the whole thing. I agree. Um, but what was the other, second question? I forget. No, that's it. You ended it. That was such a good podcast interview. Thank oh. you so much for being here. We'll see. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> is that what's your favorite sport, like the sport to watch oh. or your team or both? Uh, sport to watch. Well, I grew up, I was, uh, my dad was a gym teacher. So, uh, uh, he played college basketball. My brother, uh, loved basketball. He ended up playing baseball in college and we're all like me and my brother are both short, but I, I just fell in love with basketball as a kid, even though I was really short and I was terrible at it until about ninth grade when something finally kind of clicked i did grow a couple inches and then you know i became you know like that's all i did and uh, so i still love i i played in college i i uh, almost played professional i was a coach at the college level and then i also was uh covered the nba as like a, a sports anchor for abc and stuff so um but i do love Sports and kind of the, you know, I got really got into the World Cup last year. And so there's sports that I can, I haven't gotten into pickleball yet, uh, but um, <laughs> most sports I will uh, try to at least um, understand, I guess. Uh, but I know some people are just like, they hear about sports 
and they're like, oh, I hate, I don't like any of it. And so I always feel like a misfit in a a uh, place of misfits because it's like I'm not, you know, comedy-wise, like to see me as a jock is like really funny because no one who plays sports would ever see me. Like I'm 5'9". I mean, it's it's like an incredible feat that I even played college basketball, much less was pretty good at it. So, yeah, so, so the fact that I... I kind of like i'm very nerdy about sports as i am about comedy i love everything about comedy and and i'm kind of the same way with sports um but i i don't think of myself as like a broy jock kind of guy like i know but i know most people who are like as soon as they hear sports I'm always one of those people but <laughs> so uh, well, well what... i'll ask you what your stance on sports is it sounds like you uh because you don't know who Chris Paul is, really? Oh, I totally do. I love him. I think he's a great oh, player. Yeah, yeah I was, I was just being a jackass. Okay. Um, no, I love... I've never been to a professional basketball game, and I'm desperate to go. Um, but I love... College oh. basketball was, like, my favorite. Because growing up, we would go to all the games because my dad was a professor at a college. And so we would, like... I mean, watching college basketball is, like, one of my favorite things still. Um, but I love... On the professional level, I love to be at soccer games and at baseball games. That's, like... I, I go to those all the time. I know everybody oh, thinks wow. baseball is boring. Yeah, where, where was the college? Uh, he went to well he taught at Xavier University in Cincinnati so it was a Jesuit like oh, tiny yeah. little yeah but they're they're okay their basketball team's no, no. like decent like they're not they're not terrible um wh- where did yeah, you yeah they had a couple of people uh like a couple of guards I really mm-hmm. like were from Xavier I Aww. think um yeah they're good and who wasn't it uh Popeye Jones or uh Jones. they had like one famous a big guy Oh, can't remember his name. I can't either, but, um, but I, I should, like, I'll look it up. But they yeah. played in a good conference, though. They so do that now. Was fun. Yeah, yeah, that it's really been neat. Yeah, we still go back and watch them. I, I love, and but it's so wild to like, as I'm not college age anymore. I know, shock and awe, everybody, um, to go back and be like, who are these babies on the court? And it's like, oh right, they're like 18, 19, 20 year olds. Like, God bless, go for them, <laughs> enjoy your youth. But it is cool to watch them be yeah. that good. Where did you play college ball? Uh, I played at Binghamton University, which is uh, uh, now now a Division One school, and that's where um, Tony Kornheiser, that uh, hosts the Pardon the Interruption. That's why he always talks about Binghamton because he went there when it was called Harper College. That was, uh, um, but then it was kind of strange. I I had a weird career because I was very small, and I was kind of like, I don't want to say like. Steph Curry, but it was like, it was, um, if you know basketball, the point guard back then was just like, uh, you just played defense and you brought the ball up and ran plays. And so you didn't even really, in, in high school you could shoot and stuff like that, but in college, like, if you tried to shoot, the coach would take you out. Like, especially if it was like one of the old school coaches that like wanted to run 90 different plays. So when I first got to college, I actually played at this really small Division three school uh, called Hartwick College in Oneonta. And I started every game as a freshman, but it was just like one of those weird places where the guy was set in his ways. We ran, even our fast breaks had plays, and it was just very boring. And my dad was very ahead of his time like we shot tons of three-pointers i think our our high school team averaged about 100 points a game and we we got to play in ireland against like national teams and stuff so he he was really 
kind of cutting edge on like um you know scoring shooting three pointers um you know moving the ball and uh yeah he's he's like a hall of fame coach in in high school in new york so he he's a and he got he was my coach which was pretty amazing so yeah and then and so i actually played at this school and then in the summer i finally gained some weight i was like 17 when i graduated high school so then I gained about 20 pounds of muscle and I started playing against like NBA and division one people in the summer. And they're like, Oh, you're like a division one player now. So it was like, I started getting recruited and stuff. And then my dad who retired from high school, when I graduated, he ended up taking a junior college job in Binghamton. And so everyone's like, I I got recruited by, it was a, Pensacola Junior College and a bunch of these like Division One big junior colleges, and then all of a sudden I'm like, well, why don't you just play for your dad? So I got to play for my dad, and then we went to the Junior College National Championship. So that was like amazing. It was so much fun and uh, such cool memories. And then from there, I was kind of like the local kid that was in Binghamton. So when Binghamton was going Division One, it was like a big deal to like. We got Paul Morrissey, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I ended up being the starting guard at Binghamton, but that coach was like 72 years old and was like chasing uh, Dean Smith's record and all that kind of stuff and ended up, you know, not to, uh, to, uh, they're no, uh, he's no longer with us and, you know, a lot of the people aren't either. So I don't like to say bad things, but basically at the end of the season, he told me, I was too short to play there, which is kind of crazy because, like, I kind of won four games for them <laughs> single-handedly. So so I was like, I, you know, I had one year of eligibility left, and I, I already had my degree. And so uh, this great coach who I knew through one of my dad's players was taking over at Cortland State, which is like this really kind of powerhouse school near Syracuse, like, uh, the new coach of the Red Wings was like the goalie there when I was there. And so I transferred and I played for Cortland State when we got to play against Binghamton twice. And I lit them up both times. And they actually uh, they actually asked me about it. And I said, well, the coach said I was too short to play here. And that's actually kind of what got him fired because it ended up being he was doing a bunch of stuff that was kind of messed up and a lot of people weren't happy with it. Um, so, so it was like a struggle. Like I said, the style of play, the fact that I was like shooting, like even, even at Cortland, uh, the guy, like the coach didn't really know what to do with me. I, I was, I led the nation in three point shooting. I had like 26 points off the bench and they're like, you're not really the point guard, but you're, you're our best shooter. And so it was like a weird thing to, um, deal with and now like everyone you know you see uh you know Kyrie Irving and and uh you know the point guard is kind of a lot of times the best shooter but um and is allowed to score but back then it was just very strange that like the point guard would be just like taking a lot of shots and stuff like that um and I still was very uh like team oriented too like I was never um you know like just shooting like 40 times a game i always got like a really good percentage and and that kind of thing um but uh so so i still i still love basketball the only the only place i could have played after 
as uh, I, I had a chance maybe to play in Ireland where a couple of my dad's players play, but then uh, Washington, the Washington Generals, which is a team that gets beat by the Globetrotters every game, and uh, two of my friends did it, and I, I was taking stuff too seriously, so I was like, <laughs> no, I can't do that. And so, <laughs> and my buddy's like, my buddy's like, it combined my three favorite things, traveling the world, shooting three-pointers, and playing no defense. And I was like, <laughs> and I... And I feel like now I should have done it at least for a summer, obviously, to have that like experience and have those stories. But um, but it was like a natural progression. Like I kind of coached at I was an assistant coach for like a year. And then I the 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 guy, the TV guy that covered my team was like, hey, you want to be my intern? And so that was when ESPN was getting kind of big. And uh, so I got into like sports and I was never a TV person or anything like sports is what got me in front of a camera. And so, uh, so I, I worked in this, in Binghamton and then I, I did an internship at, uh, at Phoenix. I was kind of behind the scenes and I got an on-air job in Northern California and, um, and basically was like doing on-air stuff there. And, uh, the woman, uh, this great woman, Karen Anderson, who was doing like, the open mic night in Sacramento, she was like, hey, you're really funny on the news. You should do stand-up. And then, uh, you know, I just kind of, like, lucked into it and uh, fell in love with the stand-up after doing it. And she ended up being the head writer on the Ellen DeGeneres show. She's won, like, 30 Emmys. Like, she's still, like, one of the most successful writers I know. And so it was just lucky that I met her. So that that's kind of the long story how I ended up in comedy. But, yeah, it was a weird... Uh, weird transition i just love that the the intersection between sports broadcasting into stand-up because you know i mean there's so many people who self-congratulate and get into open mics because they're like oh i crush in high school like i was so funny and then they get into the open mic circuit and they're like oh this is a slog like no one's laughing not recognizing that the beginning is the hard part for like finding your stage presence and whatnot. But I, th- I feel like broadcasting would have served that because you already knew high pressure. You already knew think on your feet. You already knew like memorized dialogue. Like you had a lot of things already covered that like normal new open micers take a couple years to kind of get into. So you had, you had, even if you were just moderately funny, which you're very funny, but I mean, even at the time, if you were just okay, you had those boxes ticked already. So I think you had a leg up. That's huge. Um, well, I mean, and it and it became like, so you know, when I first took that job, I was the weekend sports anchor who who Rich Eisen actually went right from my station to ESPN. So I basically had his old position. I had his boss, by the way, and uh, so so I was I was doing news two days a week. So I was doing like you know, and I was still goofing around. You know, they wanted to cover murders and stuff, and I'm like, you know, I don't want to. You know, they sent me to like a park where there's a shooting. I was like, I don't want to go anywhere near that place. Somebody yeah. got shot there, you know. And, they, <laughs> and they're like, No, that's why we need it. And so, I was doing like, you know, interviewing one of the guys from an airplane and just doing lines and using clips from like, so I married an axe murder and like, <laughs> I was just doing all the wrong stuff. And so basically, I think they stopped. They they promoted me to sports anchor just so I would stop doing news stuff. Um, but. But to your to your point, like, you know, they would basically say, like, hey, we need four stories today. And I'm like, what do I do? Like, cause a car accident or what, what do you want me to do? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what is that? And so, yeah, it just makes you kind of like, well, I got to come up with something. You know, let's ask people what they want for Christmas at the mall or, you know, yeah. 
you know, what movie is like the hot thing out. So it's like you kind of learn to be, you know, productive. And I was a one man band. So it's like I had my own camera. I had my, you know, had to record all my sound stuff, had to edit everything. So and then you had to write all your your story copy. So um, which, by the way, I don't know if they still have typing in high school. I'm sure they have keyboarding or computer, but that still is the best course that I ever took. And it was probably two months of my life. But the fact that I can type without looking at my fingers is like has been especially for that job. That was like got me right into, you know, where I could write stuff for stand up. And, and, you know, you start writing and how you speak you start correcting words that you don't say correctly. Um, and also, you're on TV, live TV. You can't swear. You have to cover time. So it's like the greatest improv class ever that you have to, like, keep your cool. So so to that part, I would say yes. To getting the audience reaction, all that kind of stuff, that's something you, you definitely have to just do stand-up to do it. But also the other important thing was... I was 3,000 miles away from anyone that I knew. So even being on TV, nobody was going to see me. I didn't have the pressure of, like, all my friends or my parents watching. And I think that's what holds people back from, like, yes. truly doing what they want. You know, even musicians or something, they just don't do it because, oh, what would, you know, even I even I have friends now. They're like, yeah, yeah, I didn't know you were funny. You know, and it's just like, yep, I was. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. I think that the, the removal of that, knowing that people that you knew were going to watch you is is huge. It's interesting that you, I, I think that it's a slog I don't totally understand. Former guest of the podcast, Chester Lampkin is a good friend of mine and he's a weather reporter and he's been all over the world doing that professionally on television. Oh, wow. And he said the thing that they don't tell you that is not as not shared in the beginning is that you're basically getting paid like via, I mean, it's not called an internship, but it kind of is. So like you're making below minimum wage. And so you have to have a secondary yeah. job, but he was doing morning news at the time. So he's like, I'd be up at 3am trying to get the weather patterns sorted so I could be camera ready by six. And he he said, but I worked my night job until midnight the night before. He was like, it's just this slog they don't tell you about. Because when you're in local markets trying to get to the big time, like if your aim is, you know, national, like CNN or something, you have to play that game. Yeah. So did you have that same experience where you're like, okay, well, I can do this oh, for now. Yeah, what uh, what market was he in? Do you know that when he was there, it was Colorado and New Mexico were the two worst experiences that he had. He was very, very new to weather reporting. Okay. Yeah, because I mean, so basically, you know, the whole thing is it, it's just like learning like how to do not that you have to like mail ta tapes to clubs anymore. But like it was basically like there's 200 markets in the whole country. And so that means there's maybe three stations and they each have two sports guys. So you're talking about, you know less than a thousand people doing this job so even that was like lower stakes than playing college basketball you know like that was like a super long shot to get an on-air job but yeah my my contract was i think it was 16 five a year which is basically minimum wage i got a clothing allowance of 500 dollars at jc penny which was like enough for two half suits so I, <laughs> I was the weekend anchor so i needed two jackets two different shirts and two different ties and i would always wear shorts under the desk and you know <laughs> sneakers 
Um, but uh, and then I got hair. I got a free haircut somewhere in town, and like uh, I think that was about it. So I mean, there was people who you know like from USC or it was their like their first on air job, so they would move there and they would have like family money. But like yeah, the people who who moved there like me. Um, we didn't take it, the thing was we didn't take second jobs because it was you were working so much and even when you weren't working you were like learning how to do stuff it, it's a very like it, it feels like an internship because it's like I, I had to learn I never shot anything on a camera before I used a disposable camera that was it and I had to like my first weekend I had to shoot high school football highlights with this like we were, they were still shooting on three quarter inch tape which is even like ancient back then so i had like a little like uh a tape like that you had to carry on the left side and then put it, the camera on your right shoulder and then just figure out how to you know and, it, and the whole thing of uh, the life experience of it was like you do just have to learn trial by fire and just pick things up because there's no way they can teach you exactly what what to do like the weather guy it's funny that you say that because my my backup sports guy um the weather person called in stick and he had to learn how to do weather in like four hours and so uh, basically he got all the charts that all the weather people get and you're kind of just filling time and and putting in that information and he was just like good at it and they made him like the morning show host because he was just he could do the weather and and also do the news. It's funny how how they figure out like oh we don't need to pay another person to do that. He can just do <laughs> anything to save that money. So. Well, did you see that viral video during when the Buffalo uh, blizzard happened this past year? There was a the sports guy did have to do. I mean, it was that exact scenario. He had to do weather because oh, he yeah. was stuck at the station, but he knew nothing about nothing. And so he was like, I don't know. I think I'm supposed to go outside. Oh, it's still snowing. And it's so earnest, but it's like, it's very funny. But yeah, it's a, yeah. uh, we, we, I think we under, or I underappreciate how difficult doing all of that is because we see it done so fluidly that it's like, oh yeah, you just like the camera Amazon and you just do stuff and it's like yeah no it's all the prep work it's kind of like comedy when you see someone's finished special like people probably see ice cream versus everything and they're like Paul's really great that seems easy he's got it that's funny I laughed a lot and then you're like yeah this was I ate shit at open mics trying to sort out this material for well you probably don't eat shit anymore but like you know it's just that the it's the prep stuff no it's yeah it's um you know and there's people I guess the biggest compliment you get is that it doesn't feel like you're working that hard. Like it seems easy. And so if you make it seem conversational and seem like you're not trying too hard, I always like that kind of comedy, which by the way, you know, when I first moved to LA, it was kind of the, not to throw like Dane Cook under the bus, but it was very like, everyone was energetic and running around and you had to shout jokes and stuff. And so, for me, I love Mitch Hedberg and you know Jim Gaffigan and the guys that had great jokes and they weren't they weren't you from when you worked at the club those were always the people that made the audience you know weird is the ones that would like yell in their face and make them you know I I just wanted to be like a relaxing fun atmosphere and and uh i do have a little bit of a laid-back persona even though i'm from new york and so that's why 
I would say, and I did talk about, I got to meet Mitch Hedberg once, um, and uh, he was doing Jimmy Kimmel, and after he had had the health problems, Jimmy was the one guy that had him up because nobody knew how healthy he was. And so I ended up going there and seeing the taping, and then I met him. That was back when Jimmy had that really cool green room with, like, video games and food and stuff. So uh, so I just ended up saying hello to him. I was like, hey, I just want to say I'm a comic, and I love your stuff. Great job, man. And so he ended up, like, walking over to me later on. And he's like, so how, you know, where'd you move from? Or so he's like talking to me. So I'm like, I was in New York for a few years. And uh, he's like, how'd you like that? I was like, I don't know. I mean, I, I like L.A. seems like people are more like successful. And by that, I mean, not not to put down like I did my years in New York, but it seemed like, um, you know, like I met that that woman who uh, who was in my, uh, you know, who got me started, Karen Anderson. I went out before I moved to L.A., I went to visit her. And it was her, Karen Kilgariff, who does the My Favorite Murder yeah. podcast now. Yeah. Like Sue Murphy. Like it was all the most success. Like everyone was successful in working on a TV show. And like in New York, Dave Attell and all these guys who were the best comics in the city were complaining about like how their rent's too expensive and they can't, you know, their car doesn't work and stuff like that. So I'm like, you know, so I, I don't know. It just felt timing was right not to like, uh, put new york down but um but it just felt like the, to my lifestyle it was better and and that's what mitch you know mitch went to new york too and he said they just didn't get me you know i guess i was too like happy and laid back or something and so uh so when i i said yeah i kind of like it here i did a showcase already for something and he's like uh he goes yeah look around man you can get discovered in this room <laughs> and i was like this is pretty cool so uh so that was like a fun, fun like moment to have with with somebody, and uh, you know, somebody like that is no longer with us, and uh, you know, to get to get the experience of like, you know, you got to keep working, you got to keep getting better. So yeah, all those kind of little things um, help you along the way, especially when you don't have any credits and stuff like that. When you meet somebody that you really, you know, look up to comedy wise, and they give you a little bit of, you know pull back the curtain a little bit and show you what it's like and keep going, man, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, and there also the fact that he reflected a similar experience and commiserated with you, it makes you feel less crazy and you think, okay, it wasn't comedy that was the wrong fit. It was just the city. And I think that that's a really powerful, you know, bolster as well, because I think sometimes when you don't know which coast to go to, cause you know, it's gotta be LA or it's gotta be New York. I think it can, yeah. I know it can talk people out of it. I have dancer friends who started in New York and they're like, it must be dance. I, I can't hack it here. Then they came to LA and then they went on tour with like huge acts because they were like, Oh, it was literally just the city. Like New York just wasn't for me. So that's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah it seems like a New York is a more, not a dues paying place, but like, at least for me, like, so I was doing the road a little bit and, California and then I quit the TV job and moved to New York and kind of like resigned to like I'm starting over <clears throat> and even then like I went to grad school at NYU and got my master's in education like I did student teaching and everything like I was working like crazy the whole time but uh but I met uh you know I met Jim Gaff again like Ed Helms was like running the open mic night at the Boston Comedy Club and Jim hadn't 
he had toured a little bit, but he just started getting pretty fame. You know, not famous as he is now, but like just doing clubs. And so he really liked me. Uh, you know, even though I was doing like pale stuff and stuff about food, I think we were just really similar. And uh, and he, you know, he knew uh, kind of my style. And he, you know, so he took me to a bunch of clubs and. Uh, you know, I did like the Columbus Funny Bone DC Improv, that kind of stuff, and that helped me out. But in the city, there was the whole thing of like, oh, you got to pass the club, you got to go every six months, you got to, and I always hated that whole thing. And they would say to you, like, unless somebody dies or moves to LA, um, we're not passing anybody. So I just did like all alternative shows, that kind of stuff. And then my one big thing back then which i don't know if it's as big now like you could you could enter like contests like wendy's would have a contest or comedy central would have like an open mic contest and i would never win them but i would seem to at least get like the top five like there was one that was called the maxims real men of comedy and the the finalists were me tom segura and adam divine and like the winner got to open for Joe Rogan, which is how Tom met Joe Rogan. But the other one was this Wendy's thing. You got to perform in the the Vegas uh, HBO festival, which was really cool. And uh, and the winner got to perform on Ellen, which my friend was like a writer on, and I knew the whole staff. And so like, if there was anything that you're like, oh, I'm like a shoe in for this. Uh, but then I lost. <laughs> so, oh, no. <laughs> so, but the but the great thing was went to L, back to LA the next week and they were doing like a showcase for the Late Late Show. It was Craig Ferguson back then, and uh, I just have like I just went there to see who was showcasing, and then at, at the Booker a Adrian who worked for Adam Sandler at the time. He was running the showcase, and I was like, uh, hey, I'd love to get on this uh, showcase sometime. He's like, oh, he's like, I just saw you at the HBO thing. Great job. He's like, I think you can do that set on there. So, like, I start, I basically got that set from, like, losing the contest. So, <laughs> Silver that's, lining. Like, uh, that's another good thing of, like, just keep putting stuff out there because you never know who's who's watching. Like, oh, my best example of that was you probably might have been around when the roast battle just started and he won't mind me saying this jesse joyce who's a great he writes for jimmy kimmel and he's written for the oscars and won a ton of enemy emmys he used to write for greg giraldo on the on the roast and uh really funny comic but he did the roast battle and it was just that one of those nights at the comedy store, not even the televised one. And he lost to Earl Skakel. I love Earl. And, Hi, uh, Earl. Former guest of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. And and Earl is like, you know, professional wrestler. It's just like a whole different animal. And Jesse's just a great joke writer. But, you know, in that setting and, you know, that's Earl's home hometown is the your know, home club is the comedy store. Like he lives there. So so he had like a home field advantage. But. Jimmy Kimmel was one of the judges. And so even though Jesse lost, Jimmy liked his joke so much that he hired him to write on a show. So that just shows you like any any kind of exposure is good exposure. Like don't always see things in like wins and losses, you know.
I appreciate that perspective. I think that's totally true, especially in comedy, because you don't know who's in the room. There have been people, I don't understand audience members that come to open mics. I'll look around and I'm like, this, this is real audience. You're about to sit through two hours of this and they watch and then they leave. And I'm like, who were you? Like, who hurt you enough that you felt like this was the show you wanted to see? Like, good for you. Um, Okay, well, I want to get to the questions before everybody kills me for not getting there. Okay, so, folks. No, I'm sorry for yeah. You oh, I love got it. Me uh, reminiscing, but yeah, it's uh, it's always cool to like remember some of those stories because even I don't write enough of this stuff down. So thanks for. Uh, oh, I love it. Me on no, I, I really love it. Okay, so before we get to the next section, which is the hammer questions that everybody wants to know, I just have to know about your mom doing her 29th marathon. Like I've done two. The day you talk me into doing 27 oh, wow. more like no thanks so how did she which one did you do um i did uh san diego and i did la so i did one in 2005 and i did one in 2015 or 2013 but you got to tell me like what how did she amazing thank you well i mean the whole it's like it's on the album uh, uh, some of it but like yeah it's a real thing where she was she's an oncology nurse and she He's, it was a nurse her whole life, but she smoked until she was 40. She really was trying to quit it. And that's what finally made her quit was she wanted to start running. And um, not running, but she wanted to quit smoking. And so started running, even like tore her ACL like in the 80s and like uh, just got a new one, got it replaced like a couple years ago. And, and now it's, she's like better than ever. Because you don't ACL just you can run straight ahead you can't go side to side so she didn't even need that for running races but she yeah she just started running uh, because of that and then you know she did Boston a few times but New York has been her thing of like she she always raises about you know eight to ten thousand dollars for Sloan Kettering every year my brother's a cancer surgeon also so like that part of the family is kind of like you know medical based and then. Uh, and then she it's just a fun thing she's very my mom needs the release like even i just went to visit them i flew in on a red eye and my uber guy was like pulling up to there to have this kind of like community that's built on a golf course in florida and literally my mom's like running down the middle of the road and we're like coming up there and i'm like i tell the uber guy that's my mom right there (laughs) and she ran like 12 miles that morning even though Cause it just gets so hot in Florida. So, and she would do that in New York in the winter time. So, uh, it's pretty crazy. Uh, but she loves running and, um, you know, she, it's especially for that generation, you know, she's 76. And so even when she runs now, people didn't, they didn't even jog back then. Like men didn't, they, they played sports, but they didn't exercise. So like, She'll even run like on the golf course and everyone's like, why are you running? And she's like, I just like to run. Like <laughs> they think it's because like you have to do it. So, uh, but I know there's a cut. Michelle Wolf does those like ultra marathons yeah. and stuff. There's a few people. Mo- Moody McCarthy, my buddy, has done, done the marathon a couple of times. My brother actually ran it with her once, but didn't train. He's a good athlete, but he didn't really train like uh you know because that's a rough thing and uh so it kind of messed up his knee a little bit so that's why not that i would ever do it because i think i'm i'm uh in my attention span is not good for that i think it's a mindset like when you did it i'm sure 
it's just like you have to not only believe that you can do it, but have to be able to kind of like shut your brain off and focus on things and just keep going. So what made you want to do it? Uh, the first time was because my friends were doing it and I was just dumb and young and I was like, sure, this sounds easy and cool. Yeah. And then, uh, the second time was because I was like, I hate my job. I hate what I'm doing. I'm not pursuing anything in entertainment. I'm miserable. So I'm like, I know (laughs) I'll just add six months of training on top of my misery, but it helped because mentally I just needed something else to focus on. And then I raised money for an organization. And so it was like, Oh, I feel like I have purpose. And then after I ran the marathon a month later, I quit my job and then traveled the world for a year. So, you know, you do what you're, you do what it takes to like, you have to be crazy to do marathons. That's why when you said you're on the album, when you at the time of recording I was 75 and I was like holy shit like how how because I think of doing it now and I'm like do I have it and then after that I was like fine if his mom can do it at fucking in her 70s I might maybe I do another one so I think that's it's very yeah, inspiring now it's easier than ever because yeah. she gets to start closer to the the start line it's great her corrals earlier like, yeah it's now, great yeah now now her age group is 75 like she won a tiffany plate last year like she gets to uh you know win things now so like now she's like this is easier than it's ever been so i'm gonna keep doing it so um, and it's her big like you know i think it's also important to have like a goal and you know something you know even if it's like a six month or whatever that's that's what's so hard with comedy now that everyone wants to do these hour specials and like, you know, I would work really hard on these, you know, I was lucky enough to get to do a bunch of late night spots. So like, you know, a five minute spot, you know, that's especially when you're starting out, there's some people that never get that great five minutes. And then once you do it, you're like, oh, this is how you hone down. This is how you edit a great five minutes. And like everyone that's doing these hour specials now, they never learned how to how to how to do that. So like. You know, if you know how to, if you know how long it is to make the great five minutes, then you build on that. Whereas, like people now are starting with so much extra, and then there's still a lot of stuff that you can take out. So I still build things on like five minute increments because that's kind of how I learned how to how to like tighten stuff up. You know, yeah. but uh, but it is weird that like. Um, I don't know. I, I guess people enjoy hearing the longer stories and stuff. If you like somebody and you're already a fan, you'll kind of listen to them talk and explore more. But like for somebody who's never seen you to have like some really loose version of of all your jokes. I just, I don't know. I, I can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just saw Dan Levy. Um, he's not the Dan Levy, not Dan Levy. Levy. Is it? Le- I don't know how, not the guy that from Schitt's Creek, but the, he's a writer on TV and he's a comic. I just saw him the other night at the ice house and I started counting because he was, it was such a joke machine. My abs hurt. I was like, how is he coming? And it was every five seconds he had a joke. And I, cause I, I was like, there's no yeah. way that, why am I laughing this hard? And it's like, Oh, because he understands the rhythm. Uh, and he's assuming, this crowd has not seen him before and it was just like hit 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 i was like that is yeah that's mastery i thought i was so impressed um okay yeah i mean it would be nice to get to the point where it's like i can just talk about super obscure things but not not obscure but like whenever we talk about like you know like get into running and i can get into like other stories or uh you know where i grew up there's all these kind of weird stories that come up uh you know uh we were just talking the other day about 
how how different things are. I grew up in a really small town. Like we just we just changed the mascot from the Indians like this year. It just <laughs> happened. So um so uh but it was like the eighties, they had this thing called the Strawberry Festival and they, they had this like um I think it was a hamster race or something like that. It was like this kind of race through and uh and the sheriff was in it and he told the guy like if his guy if his hamster didn't win he was gonna eat it if they if it lost and so the hamster lost and this is like in the newspaper you can look it up like we go new york 1983 sheriff is i think he he didn't even get fired he got like reprimanded because it made it made it, it was like insubordination but he like put Salt, pepper, and ketchup on the losing hamster and ate it. <laughs> like ate it raw? Just, I think so. I don't know if they prepared it or not. It's in, it's one of those things like, you know, it still pops up in like the newspaper things. Because my, my whole thing now is like, especially even at the comedy store, you hear a lot of like tall tales at comedy clubs and stuff and catch people in some lies. So my thing now is like, you know, even that story I tell about, we went to Ireland and we had the bus driver and I, we, I saw the same bus driver 15 years yeah, later, like yeah. I had pictures of that guy. Like there's people that were on that trip that were in the room for the special. So my, my old thing is like, I want to make sure people know, like, I'm not, I'm not making any of this up. Like if this stuff is crazy enough for me to want to say at a show, it, it happens. So. I, that's, a, that's, that's authentic comedy and audiences are smart. I think that's true. Okay. We have to push past this or I could talk to you for hours and hours. Okay, folks, we hope you enjoyed your apps. We're going to move on to the entrees after a quick break. We are back and now it is time for the entrees. Okay, so um, Paul, I know you've listened and you get how this all works. We always start with the same question. What was the first job where the government was taking taxes out of your money? So the first job you had, you can say babysitting or whatever, but like, did you have a job in your early days that you were getting like a check for? for? Yeah, so I was, I was, this was like, like I said, small town, the most cush job that you could get this is funny how I see this as a cush job. We, my brother and my sister, I think also did it. But so this is like when you're, it might've been before my senior, you get to be the, I, I was the janitor at the elementary school, like during the summer. So it was like a 40 hour minimum wage week. And so you basically like painted the hallways in the elementary school. You, uh, you uh, varnished the fl- like the doors. You waxed the floors. Like that was like the cush job, and um, and I was still like, you know, I was I was getting really good at basketball, so I would go, go to these like camps and stuff. And so I wouldn't do it the whole summer, but I mean, at least you know, six to eight weeks, I was working, you know, seven a.m. to three o'clock, like as a janitor, and it was it was a good. I will say it's a good, um, I don't want to like look down at the work, but like everybody I worked with had made a few mistakes and like, we're kind of like, yeah, if I'd have done it differently, here's what I would, you know, there was a guy who was like, I was in a band, I was supposed to go to Nashville, you know, and you know, things got, you know, so he's like, make sure you follow your dreams and that, that kind of stuff. But then there was also like, we had a guy from 
actually our church brought him over. He was from Vietnam. He was a soldier in Vietnam, like a scout for the U.S. Army, and was missing like a couple fingers and and was like the hardest working guy you've ever seen in your life. And was cleaning toilets and running to like scrape up gum and stuff. So it's like, you know, it it, it was like, oh, if, if you have a job, work hard at it. And if you don't want to do it, then get another job. And I think to your to your listeners, like that's what, you know, especially in the service industry, it's like you should do everything that you, everything that you're working you know, at, you should do like full, you know, all in, because I think that's habits. You know what I mean? If you get to where you think you can half-ass something, then you start doing that for other things. And I think that's like a good lesson to learn is like, you know, we all know, like you work hard, time flies. So, but if it's something that's like sucking the soul out of you or something that's just not the right fit, obviously you can move on. But um, but for the most part, that's kind of my thing is when you see, when you see somebody who's like doing a job, even if it's like a good job and you just tell they're not really doing what they're supposed to, you know, like is the comics were so observational that we can see the guy who, you know, you know, the guy at Chipotle that's not rushing back to the front line to take orders and everybody hates his guts because he's just pretending he's checking something in the back or whatever. And <laughs> 100%. I was just at Target the other day and the guy like, I walked up to the register to like check my stuff out and the guy was on his phone and I was like, I said, oh, sorry, are you open? And he just looks up and he, what I just did was nod. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe he's nonverbal. And so like he checks all my stuff out and like points to the screen. And I was like, oh, he truly, maybe this guy truly is nonverbal. So I was trying to be compassionate. And then he hands me this, my bags and his buddy comes in line behind him and he's like, oh, what's up, man? Like blah, blah, starts talking to him. And I was just like, what? I, I hate everything. Like it, you don't want the job. Don't do the job. Like, you, but you're at the job, <laughs> do the job. Like use your work. I was yeah. so annoyed. Okay. Well, all right. That was your first job. So how many summers did you do that? Was that all the way leading up to college? So I think that was at least two or three years. Okay. And, um, yeah. And I, but I had like, uh, you know, I worked at the YMCA and that was like when the YMCA was like, they still had like the uh, the mentally ill people from the old hospitals would live in the rooms, you know, like residents. Yeah, that's what they used to be, you know, like they used to have actual rooms and stuff there. And, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, especially. Yeah, I think New York, New York City. I knew a bunch of guys who would like stay at the YMCA like for, you know, to go audition for stuff because it was like cheaper. Um, but I think it's like. I don't know if it's like people just getting out of like, you know, hospitals or prisons or stuff like that. There's definitely some kind of like um, transitional housing. At least there was back then. I'm sure there's, you know, uh, insurance that wouldn't cover that now. But yeah, we had, you know, so I would have like all the rich people who were, you know, they had like an exclusive club that you could pay for like towels and you got your own YMCA t-shirt and shorts when you got there, you know, all the bankers and jewelers and stuff like that. And then they would be mixed in with all these crazy people. Um, and I use that affectionately. Um, cause one of the guys they called Elvis and he was dressed in full like cowboy with like fake guns and stuff like that. And would always 
come and like sweet talk me in the morning to try to get free coffee because I was working at the front desk. So, <laughs> so that was a pretty eclectic group. But I did it because I got to play basketball and 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 got the membership for free and that kind of stuff. Um, wait, I, and, uh, wait, don't transition out of this. I have so many questions. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Okay, okay. So, like, when you have this mix of humans on the various spectrums of of mental illness, include I'm including bankers in that. Sorry. Uh, what would you yeah. like? <laughs> would you ever get? Were there you know fights? Was there ever like conflict, or was it just kind of everybody cohabitated, understanding like, yeah, this is just the mix we're in. Yeah, this was in this was like in Binghamton, New York, which is a little more uh, urban than when I grew up um, or where I grew up, because, uh, you know, we if we had like two or three kind of like mentally ill or homeless people, we all knew them like in my hometown, like everyone just kind of like looked out for them a little bit. And then Binghamton, I think, was a little bit more like uh yeah like people coming from other cities and that kind of thing and so yeah it was it was not a you know there was definitely like think like uh i remember <laughs> this was really a there was a there was a kid oh yeah these were kids so they said that uh they and this wasn't me but these kids said that we forgot our locker combination. We need somebody to open it up. So, like, they got, like, a locksmith or somebody to open up the, the lock. And then, like, an hour later, this guy comes back and, like, hey, somebody stole my stuff. And, like, <laughs> oh and so, like, so it was, like, city enough where, like, kids would be smart enough to pull, like, scams like that. So, uh, so you, it was kind of a mix of uh, people and and uh but very good pickup games and good good basketball players and good uh you know like kind of like street ball players that maybe didn't play in college but were kind of revered in like we oh you oh uh, big mike's here you know or somebody famous that you knew so it was kind of cool atmosphere to work in um and and it was more social you know like my friends would be there working out and stuff but then Service-wise, I worked weekends as a, a bellman at a hotel, and that was like my first real, uh, like, like uh, you know, you got to be there at eight a.m. The owner comes at nine, and if you don't open the front door for him, you'll get fired. Like that kind of stuff, and uh, you know, that's the stuff that really tests your patience. Of you know, I always did a good job as a bellman, but I was like. You know, I kind of you, you you learn to like, oh, this guy's not working. You know what I mean? He owns the <laughs> hotel. He's not doing anything. You always re- have respect for like, you know, you work in a restaurant and the guy who owns the place starts vacuuming and and doing stuff. Like, I always had more respect for people who who kind of took initiative and you know that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, yeah, just like the rich guy who owns the hotel that comes there for his coffee and his paper every morning, like. Fuck you. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. So, did you, when you were working there, was there ever an experience where you were like the juxtaposition at the Y, where you were kind of just treated like a peer? You weren't treated like someone that was like working there because you, you, it was sort of a hybrid. Was was the bellman job? Were there moments where you were like, oh, I'm absolutely being treated like a peon customer service person? Oh, absolutely. I think even even now it's hard to. You know, because it's like you go to a hotel 
And like, it's almost like when you're, you work as a waiter and then you go back and you're just like, this guy's trying too hard. Like you go to like a, I don't know, some high end steakhouse, but it's in like Cincinnati. It's not New York, you know? And Mm -hmm. so they have a whole, uh, yeah, they have their whole spiel and they've been working their whole lives to like get this job and you know but they're just there's no heart in it you know what i mean they're just like memorize this thing and it's just like you're trying too hard just we just want to eat be a person you know take care of things you know all the upselling and the weird you know weird stuff is and but uh but yeah as as a a bellman you can see immediately when people are just like treating you like crap and like want you to like just do stuff and obviously like tipping was essential for that like there was a guy who worked there like he got like a bad divorce and i think he got his wages like you know when they garnished garnished your wages so he was basically like living off these tips you know so if he could make 50 or 100 bucks you know a weekend you know and and you could do that once in a while. I remember how much that meant to me when you, somebody would get give you five bucks for taking a couple suitcases. I remember like a big thing if you had a, like a buff, it was like a prepaid like two dollars a bag or something. So you would get like two dollars a bag for all the stuff on this bus. So you'd get like you know fifty or hundred dollars just for this for a, like a bus tour or something like that. And so uh, so yeah, you remember like how much you know you know, 20 bucks means back then. So I don't, I don't take it lightly when, you know, somebody's working a job like that and you can give them a little extra. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, okay. How many customer service jobs have you had total? Would you say like I include comedy, but not Uh, really. Well, I mean, I will say I probably had, you know, I had a couple like tutor jobs, you know, I did my student teaching. So I did like a couple, I worked for a place called star education in LA when I first moved and I taught like podcasting and like ma- magazine writing, you know, stuff like it was, it's like after school programs, I taught a roller coaster class that like we took all the kids to six flags and, you know, they learned all the physics of the roller coasters and got to go on the roller coasters, which is kind of cool. That's um, awesome. It's so I want to take that class yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's funny. There is like some kind of roller coaster alliance or foundation or something. What? They actually pay for all the kids to like go to Six Flags at the end of the class. It's kind of cool. Um, but uh, but yeah, I would say, you know, I and, and I, you know, I was a camp counselor at a lot of these basketball camps and stuff, too. So I was I probably worked more as like teacher mentor kind of thing than like actual service job i I was a i worked like a concession at a uh like a car racing place like on a saturday by the way i did that this this is all like the same i would i worked like the hotel bellman friday night and then worked at the ymca like i remember (laughs) you're you're bringing up bad memories but i remember this is while I'm playing college basketball, by the way. And, and I'll, I also have two. This will make people not feel as bad for me. But uh, so so but one of the shifts was like, I think it was 515 on Saturday morning. This is like when I'm a sophomore in college. So it's like that's not good, you know. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I would have to get up at like, you know, 445, drive down there. 
And so what would happen is you're the YMCA. So there's all these like old people. I call them old, but let's be honest, they probably weren't. But they're just lined up to go into the pool, like first thing Saturday morning, like at five. You know, it opened at five thirty. Crazy enough, the Y on a Saturday, and so I get there at five fifteen. You'd have to let everybody in the locker room, and then the pool opened at five thirty, and then I honest. To God, they would all be gone by six o'clock. And my big theory was that it was all old people who got up early to make sure they didn't die in their sleep. (laughs) 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 Why else would they do that? Why would you get up at five in the morning to swim for ten minutes (laughs) and then go back home? I just think I think somebody just read in the paper that like all these people die in their sleep so they're like i'm just gonna get up at four in the morning then because <laughs> if i get up before the sun i won't die it's like they're werewolves that's good i mean i get yeah. it it's flawless logic okay so you yeah it would work so i work five five to like 11 and then the racetrack would just be saturday afternoons from like one to four and we'd sell hot dogs and all that kind of stuff and uh yeah it was it was i was always always had and you know you didn't make any money it was just enough to like pay for gas and some food and stuff like that my only i had two really great jobs because of basketball um i was i i i got to be a janitor at the broom county arena which it was all the athletes got this job and so basically what they said is like there's four locker rooms your summer job is to paint the locker rooms so once all four of them are painted, your job is over. Do you understand? And so it was basically like <laughs> you just did nothing yeah. the whole summer until like the last week, and of, then you paint all four. Of then, course, so, that's uh, what a stupid. <laughs> that's so dumb on their on their part. Like, oh, because you think I'm going to rush through this so I don't get paid the rest of the summer? Fuck you! I'm going to screw around. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So um, that was with like baseball players and one other basketball player, my roommate, and then. The other job was, and this is so funny because, so it was at Binghamton University, what they would do is they would, they would hire like four people for the fitness center, right? Knowing that like one of them would show up. So like they'd have two basketball players, two regular students. And then it was kind of like the Sopranos, like no show jobs where like we're 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 at basketball practice so we're obviously not going but we got paid to like be working at the fitness center that whole time and i remember the supervisor guy that i met like the first day was always mad that we didn't have to show up for the job and you could tell he always wanted to complain about it but he just didn't and so i went back and i performed at the anderson center at binghamton university and uh, i opened for bobcat Goldthwaite. And, uh, you know, it's like a 5,000 seat place. The guy who was managing the venue was the guy who ran the fitness center. Come and on. he was still mad that I, <laughs> I didn't show up. He's like, you remember, remember me? Probably not. You didn't show up for that, that job. Like, he wasn't even telling me that I was a comedian. He was just like, we paid you for nothing. 
I love, I love, you know what though? I'm petty as fuck. I would probably be big mad years later too. Like I would for sure rush the stage to be like, you didn't do your job. I mean, I can appreciate where he's coming from. That's a great story. Okay. Um, so when we, if we were going to total out, so that was two great jobs where you were, okay. So that's two. Then you said concessions, three camp counselor, four, Bellman, five, tutor. I gave you two there, six, seven, YMCA, eight. So would you say like, like 10 customer service jobs? Would you guess that? Dealing, dealing with actual customers. Yeah. I'll give, I'll give you, here's one that I don't know if you ever got roped into one of these. So there was like a summer where you would check the want ads and it would be these marketing jobs. I've heard so many people have shared about these. These are miserable. Go ahead. Go ahead. And so you probably know this company. So it, it was, uh, it was vector knives. So I, is that like Cutco? Like, uh, it might be. It was basically like you had to, yeah. This they wanted you to like sell knives, but it was like they brought you in. You know, they say like you make make a uh, you know thousand you know thousand dollars a month or something like that, and blah blah blah. And so the whole thing was like you had to buy the knives yourself first, and then basically get like your family and everybody else to buy them but in the beginning for just the interview it was like my first real like interview even though it wasn't a real interview and you get you know i'm dressed up and the guy's like this looks pretty good it's the whole thing is like he's gonna he they're taking everybody that's that's the goal so everyone applied for this thing and you're like this looks pretty good you know if if we're if we're interested we'll give you a call and then of course like 15 minutes later they'll call you and then they're like hey are you free this afternoon for training and i'm you know i'm like oh yeah this is great and then you and then you come back and there's like 100 people in this room and they're just going to run this video and you're like ah oh, you fucking got me and then i just got up and walked out like uh, <laughs> 